Shut up and sit down. Did you ever get the feeling that you're being given signs, indications that a change of course is necessary? Because I feel that 2020 has been a year of giving us signals uh, with all the horrible things that are going on, a lot of which we're going to talk about today on the episode. The things that seem to be happening seem to have an overarching message of kind of look, learn, listen, adjust, fix, correct, and move forward. And I think that's what seems to be happening this year. We're getting thrown a lot of signs where we have to address climate relations and race relations and, you know, policy relations and, and government action and interpersonal relationships. And it just seems to be that 2020 has, you know, the first half of it has come on with a real bang and put a mirror up to a lot of us to say, time for some self-reflection, time to focus on the things that are important and to manifest change in the areas that desperately have been wanting and needing it for many, many years. And that includes climate change and that includes how we look after each other and that includes our race relations and, you know, all of the things that have led us to the current situation that we find ourselves in now, where there are mass protests around the world, there are violent protests, vandalism, a constant attempt by the media and by governments to drive us apart and to keep us from being any sort of cohesive unit that can coexist peacefully together, it seems to me more and more that the system that we're involved in is predicated on division for its continued success. Us fighting against each other, whether that be to, you know, divide and conquer or just to keep us bickering while, you know, all of the machinations that run the society keep working for those that they have worked for, that they were set up to work for, continue to be effective for those people that are in charge. And the things that have been happening, particularly over the last couple of weeks, have, have made me really kind of take a step back because I've wanted to do this episode for the better part of a week, week and a half. About two, two days after the George Floyd murder, I wanted to come on and and, and just speak my mind and get some thoughts out. I've been wrestling with my thoughts on how to put this down because in the current climate, the last person that anybody wants to hear from is, you know, a white guy with bald head that speaks like me, lives in England, and exemplifies all of the things that you know, a, a lot of people are complaining about this institutional racism, white privilege, so on and so forth. And I just thought it was worth taking a little step back to look at the situation from a macro scale and also from a micro scale to 
try to develop some nuance in the conversation because as with any tough issue, any kind of razor edge issue that can, you know, that can slice and divide people or make people quickly fall on one side or another and, and fall into those partisan sort of comfortable echo chambers. Whenever anything like that happens, it's important to try to create some nuance in the discussion to, to talk about everything, whether uncomfortable, whether, you know, easy to hear, easy to admit, but it's important to talk about all of those things. And I wanted to take just a little time to address the institutional racism that is ever present, the protests and the involvement in those protests of certain groups, the commentary that I'm hearing online from so-called influencers or academics about what we should be doing, what we should not be doing. Um, and just a little bit of, I guess, personal reflection on how I grew up and how I came to be the way I am, uh, which <clears throat> ultimately is all down to my mom and the way that my household was when I was growing up. But the problem here is where to start because I don't want to give you guys a history lesson. And again, as I said a minute ago, the last thing you want to be doing is listening to a white guy tell you the problem with institutional racism, the Black Lives Matter cause, and all of this stuff. But it's my podcast and I'm going to do it. So um, if we start back, what we have to understand is that when people say that the system was based off white supremacy, we have to be careful with how we throw around terms that are incredibly inflammatory. And I get the reason for using a term like white supremacy, right? It's to, it's to position the white race above any other race and make every other race a subject class, effectively. One that works for the upper class of a society, in which case, you know, since the dawn of time, it's effectively, you know, or at least in the last, you know, few hundred years, it's been the white man at the top of that heap. And as a cause and consequence of that institutional structure, others have been subjugated to a degree that nobody in that upper class, that power class, can understand. And that's not just white people. And you can't generalize, right? You can't blanket statement any of these things because the closest neighbors in America demographically are black people in the ghetto and white people who live in trailer parks, right? Those ultra poor, ultra sub, you know, just those classes of folks that are subjected to the worst of everything. They don't have the infrastructure to run a productive society or community. They don't have access to the same level of education, resources, you name it. So we have to be careful in terms of how we blanket statement things when they're relating to race and inequality. But there is no doubt 
that the institutions that we have, for the most part, governmental, corporate, are run predominantly by white old men. That's always been the case. Aristocracy, you know, monarchs, you know, you name it. They've all they've always been of the white persuasion. And anybody that creates a game or creates a business makes it run or hopes to make it run in their favor. Now, the level of equality that derives that favor going back in time has been of varying degrees of severity, right? And what I mean by that is slavery. What I mean by that is, you know, in the more recent times, how black people couldn't get a mortgage in America to live or buy houses in certain parts of the community because it would drive the property value down in that area of the community. And they didn't want that. There's a term for it. It's slipping my mind at the moment, but I'm sure plenty of you out there know what I'm talking about. But if we track back to slavery, then we're talking about colonial powers. And we're talking about powers that we're only interested in creating subject classes around the world while they, fur while they furthered the interests of the upper class. That has led to some horrendous moments in history that are still resonating, that are still felt very, very deep in the black community in the UK, um, in America, obviously. But if we if we take those institutions, we also have to be honest with ourselves to say that those institutions have led to the progress of a lot of people outside of the white race, right? Outside of white people. And I talk about this because are we not to judge somebody on the totality of their efforts rather than some single occasion in history where they did the worst thing that they could retrospectively looking at those things because when they were when they were embarking on the slave trade it wasn't unusual as disgusting as that sounds but that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't do anything to negate where we are now. But we have to admit that there have been good institutions that have done good work as they have progressed through time, recognizing the ills of what perhaps they were founded or established on, to benefit more communities than just the one that they were originally intended to help. One example for that is We've seen the statue of, I think his name's Richard Colston, uh, torn down in Bristol over the past couple of days and dumped into the harbor. Was Colston a, a slave trader? 100%. Was he detrimental to the black community that he interacted with? Did he set them back? Did he subjugate them? 100%. On the other hand, and, I'm, and this is not an excuse, this is not a uh, justification or anything like that. These are just facts. That's all I'm interested in. Colson also 
help develop educational institutions, medical institutions, charitable institutions that, again, have provided benefit to more people than just white people. But that does not justify him being a slave trader at all. I'm just stating facts. The same thing is with uh, Cecil Rhodes, for instance, who, if you don't know who Cecil Rhodes is, Cecil Rhodes was, again, another racist, another slave trader, another, uh, you know, by today's standards or recent history standards, a horrible, horrible bastard because of how he treated ethnic minorities and people who weren't white. You'll also probably know the last name Rhodes because he's responsible for setting up the Rhodes Scholarship, which is currently funded today. And the Rhodes Scholarship is, by some accounts, the most prestigious educational award that a non-British student could receive. It's effectively a short list of exemplary, exemplary students, overachieving students, who receive a scholarship that allows them to come to England to study at Oxford University. That scholarship fund was set up by a racist. That scholarship fund was set up by somebody who thought categorically that black people should be a subject class. Africans should be a subject class. He was part of the African Trade Company, so on and so forth. So there is a tarnished history with Cecil Rhodes. But do we rip that statue down knowing that the Rhodes Scholarship, which he set up and founded and, and family supports to this day, do we negate all of the fact that Black, Asian, you know, non-white students have benefited from that program, from that scholarship, and, have, and that scholarship program has then allowed them to go on to achieve wonderful things, fun, phenomenal things in life, right? I'm just, I'm, again, I'm asking the question because I want to know. I want to know where the nuance falls. I want to know where, what kind of nuance we can have in these conversations. Because again, there is no excuse for subjugating a class of people to the extent that, that black people have. There's just no excuse for it. And yes, all of that bubbles up, but I bet if you asked nine out of 10 protesters to tell you who Cecil Rhodes was, they wouldn't be able to tell you. So do we mark him in history as a racist or as a philanthropist? Or can both of those coexist in who the man is? And can we not just understand and learn from history based on the facts, based on all of the facts, not what the media want to split us on. Should Colson's statue have been taken down? Most probably. But should it be taken down by protesters who are rampaging, looting, becoming violent against police officers? Again, we, we treat these actions as blanket statements and gestures to a cause that, that requires real nuance, real conversation and dialogue to actually get to the bottom of the problem. So the same thing goes with a guy like Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson, if you don't know, was the vice president under uh, John F. Kennedy. 
Lyndon Johnson was a known racist, but you find me somebody in American history, especially a white person in American history, that's done more for the black community than Lyndon B. Johnson. Because Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. He put that together. So is that just him pandering to the black community? Or did he actually want both? And you can't have both. I understand that. But again, do we judge a person on one of their actions and not the other? Because the action that we want to judge them on fits the narrative and the current climate that we're in? Or do we take the totality of a person and assess them for the historical merit, both positive and negative, rather than just putting some ropes around a statue, tearing it down, throwing it in the water, and pretending like that is an action that's going to create change? Because it's not. You can't just put a mask over history and say that didn't happen. The best way to address the injustices of history, in my opinion, is to look at them straight in the eye and say, I understand this happened. I understand this happened. I hate this person for this. I don't hate him for this or her or them or whatever it may be. But this is my point about context and nuance is we have to have a nuanced conversation because what I'm seeing from the protesters and the rioters, although there are a lot of peaceful protesters out there, this is becoming an incendiary action of violence and destruction by a lot of different people. And again, I'm going to caveat everything that I say here because I'm, I'm, treading, I'm treading water carefully along all of these lines of discussion. But I watched a lot of videos on the protesters. They were not all Antifa, okay? And we have to recognize the fact that people have been locked indoors for three months doing nothing. The unemployment rate in America is almost 25%. We're talking 1920s depression, uh, 1930s depression era unemployment. So you got people at home, you got people that are desperate, you got people that have nothing to do, nowhere to go and nothing to take their energy out on. So you're seeing a mass uprising of obviously the black community, the white community, but then you get these Asian provocateurs that come in, you get groups like Antifa, you know, so on and so forth. But to just blanket, again, generalize and blanket statement, the fact that all the looters are Antifa or Asian provocateurs is insane. And there has to be an accountability and a responsibility taken by the community that's trying to manifest this change to do the best that they can in these times so that they don't get painted in the wrong light and they don't get painted with the wrong brush because it's it's not just white people that are looting it's not just antifa that are looting there are black people running into the louis vuitton store stealing bags there are people running into the nike stores coming out with 10 different boxes and i've seen a ton of black folks now are those black folks asian provocateurs are those black folks part of antifa i don't know but we can't generalize and we can't make blanket statements about such a nuanced issue that requires our focus and attention because if we do that a solution never gets reached a solution never is even properly discussed so 
this is kind of what the media likes to do when they see, you know, a few white people in bandanas spray painting, then they want to say, well, that's Antifa. That's, that's the negative response. That's how they're making these protests violent. Well, that's never really been Antifa's MO, has it? I know they like to cause disruptive protests, but I haven't seen a ton about them looting and burning down buildings and vehicles and so on and so forth. And maybe they've radicalized. I don't know. Maybe they've gone even further with their, you know, with their intentions. I don't know. I'm just saying that I've seen footage of white folks looting. I've seen footage of black, fo black folks looting. And I think the accountability needs to be taken by all sides to say, this is not a course of action that we will tolerate. And anybody that, no matter what community you're from, if you're found looting, you'll be held accountable by the community. Because that's the only way you can sort of stop this from happening. It has to be done by the people on the ground. Because otherwise, what's going to happen? You're going to get the military on the streets like Donald Trump has suggested doing? then you're really finding out, all people will find out what it's like to live in subjugated circumstances, in ghettos, in, you know, in controlled and restricted areas, as some groups in the past have found and know what that's like. Talk to the Chinese and then their internment camps and talk to the Jews and what it felt like to live in 1930s and 40s, you know, Germany and surrounding areas in Europe. So the rioting across America, although understandable, has to be painted with an accurate brush and accountability from all sides has to be taken. And a lot of people out there will say, well, isn't it justified all the shit that we've been through? Can't we, uh, you know, can't we take our aggressions out on on society, on, on, on the businesses, on the corporate world. Can't we do that? Yeah, but direct your attention. What good does it do to walk down to a mom and pop shop in your neighborhood and light it on fire? That's black on black crime. That's community based violence. And what they need now, both in this country and particularly in America, is some solidarity. And people showing up in mass numbers is great. But when you have outliers, they're allowed to cause disruption from both sides, again, from both sides, whether it be the white folks that are causing shit from these kind of Asian provocateur groups, or if it is Antifa, and it's the white folks in Antifa. <coughs> okay, we need to hold them accountable. But we also have to admit that there are black folks looting. You just have to be able to say that. You have to be able to have a nuanced conversation. I'm not blaming them. I'd be fucking mad. I'd be tearing the house down myself, which is why I'm not going to these protests that are in London. I don't pretend a virtue signal, and I don't pretend to get into situations or want to get into situations where I know I probably won't exhibit the best behaviors of my, you know, of my capabilities. 
And I know that if I went down to the protesters, I'd get wrapped up in it. And the next thing I know, I'd probably be throwing something through somebody's window, you know, and that's just not the course of action that I want to take. I'd rather verbalize my thoughts, put them down and see what happens. See who wants to engage in a conversation. But I'm not going to get myself caught up in the chaos. I'd rather try to bring some, some sense and, as I've said a bunch of times, some nuance to the conversation. And we can have this conversation about George Floyd as well. Because depending on who you're listening to, you'll hear what I'm seeing develop as one of two narratives. The first being George Floyd was on coke or meth. He was resisting arrest, trying to, when he was questioned on trying to use a counterfeit note. Okay. That doesn't mean he should be dead. That doesn't mean that a cop so uneducated about how to detain or restrain someone, how, how they were able to sit on that guy's neck and kill him in front of passersby and watchers and nobody did anything, including the three other police officers that were with him. He doesn't deserve to die off the back of that. He deserves to be in jail as he was in jail many other times previous to this. So you'll hear the narrative of, this is why he got himself in the position he was in. And then you'll hear the other narrative of, well, yes, he had a troubled past, but he was trying to fix himself. Both narratives are potentially true, but potentially irrelevant because there's no way that man should have, that cop should have had his neck on George Floyd's neck for that amount of time. He shouldn't have even restrained him that way. You don't need to restrain somebody that way. But there was something in that cop's demeanor and his behavior and his stress levels and his PTSD levels and his, you know, in his view on black people generally. I don't know. Hopefully that will come out, you know, in the trial. But the reality of the fact is that George Floyd had done I think seven years in prison for being part of a home invasion where he was charged with being the getaway driver and also holding a gun to a pregnant woman's stomach whilst they were robbing her. Again, do we paint somebody with one brush because of one event or a couple of events? I don't know. But I know that if you resist arrest, you're going to provoke. If you're high on cocaine, you're going to be, you're going to be in an agitated mood. You're going to be in a defensive mood. You're going to be worked up. You're going to probably be desperate. If you're using a counterfeit 20 to try to buy something, your circumstances in your mindset are probably not in what I would call a healed space or a space that would signify to me that you're trying to be the best person you can be. Again, this does not justify 
the means or the end of the George Floyd situation. That man does not deserve to be dead because he was high on coke, because he was resisting arrest, or because he was using a counterfeit $20 bill. None of those things should equal a death sentence by a police, by asphyxiation in public. None of those things should. But if you resist arrest from a cop, what does he do? He gets agitated with you. Who is in a position of authority there? The policeman is. So what do you expect in a certain way? Do you expect him to just be like, well, okay, carry on. Carry on doing what you're doing. Because I don't expect that from law enforcement. The same way I don't expect them to use unnecessarily violent treatment to detain someone which ultimately kills them. So we have a, tr we have a police training problem, we have an educational problem, and we have a qualification problem. Because obviously, the job is far too stressful for the average person to do it, yet we allow the average person to come into that field and pretend like they're an expert in all things psychology, race relations, mediation, conflict resolution, you know, self-control, all of these things we're expecting from one person whose job it is to go around and investigate people on a daily basis who have the number one motivation is to lie to you. If I'm a cop and I'm questioning somebody for something untoward, they're going to lie to me. Even down to a random traffic stop, pull somebody over for speeding, they're going to say I wasn't speeding or when was I speeding, then it becomes confrontational, right? And a lot of people just, they, that's another thing in America, right? A lot of people, I don't see this in England, a lot of people in America feel like it's their right to refuse to give identification to police officers when they ask them. Maybe there's something in the constitution that I don't know about, but even if there is, what's the fucking point? When you know that that is going to escalate the situation into a problematic scenario, why would you do that? It seems ultimately counterproductive to me to, to do that. And maybe in my younger days when I was a little shit, and I was a rebellious prick, getting up to no good, maybe that's how I would have handled it. But it seems to me that that is a wholly unproductive mode of communication and interaction with the, with the police. If they stop you and ask you for ID, give it to them. Comply with them. Take up your grievances afterwards, but don't let the situation escalate to a point where something terrible and irreversible is going to happen to you and your family. It seems crazy to me that you would have those interactions with police officers, but then I haven't grown up in the black experience. I don't know how alienated and, you know, ostracized they must feel as part of regular society, especially by those in power. So, I understand why some of them may feel that way. They hate the police, you know, fuck the police and all of that. And you're not looking out for me and so on and so forth. And are there a ton of bad, unqualified, incompetent police officers out there? 100%. You find incompetency in all walks of life, which is why I go back to saying this is a qualification issue, this is a training issue, and this is a psychological issue, because you need the right people to be law enforcement.
not anybody, especially people who may, you know, have some inferiority complex that they grew up by being because they were bullied in high school. And now they just want to have some piece of authority that they can exercise at any chance they can get. And knowing that they can take it out on a black person is going to generally mean less consequences than if they do it to a white person. Right. But saying that, look at the death statistics of those folks that have been killed by police officers. And I think you'll find a glaring inconsistency with what the media says. I don't have the numbers to hand. I have looked at them. But there's a lot of white folks that get killed at the hands of police as well. But that doesn't, again, justify anything that happened with George Floyd, anything to do with the black experience, the history of, you know, um, black people in America, you know, their, their fight for equality and, and any of the things that they've had to struggle for over the last, you know, 300 years. So it doesn't, it doesn't justify any of that, but perhaps create some context and I think that what we, what we find ourselves doing now is we find ourselves going backwards. We find ourselves talking about, you know, the institutional racism again. And there is absolutely institutional racism in America. There's absolutely institutional racism, I would hazard a guess, in every single country in the world. Every single country in the world. If you go to you know, China, they fucking hate Japanese people, whether it's put on billboards or whatever. And the reverse is the same. That comes from wartime and how the Japanese fucked up the Chinese real, real bad during, I think it was, was it World War One, World War Two. Again, not trying to be a historian here. I'm just saying that this is not a unique problem to America, okay? But if we look back at the history of America, what we understand is the 13th Amendment didn't do anything other than change the uniform of those that get to subjugate the marginalized. That's really all the 13th Amendment did, right? abolishing slavery but that just pivoted to a new way for the you know the white class that led america and controlled all the institutions in america to subvert and continue to subjugate the black community and if you don't know what the 13th amendment is again i'm not going to present you with history lesson but i will give you a recommendation to say go and check out the documentary 13th and you will understand the shift from slavery to the industrial prison complex in America and how that new state of slavery was the pivot point. The uh, illegality of things like marijuana, who, which proportionately affected how the black community were prosecuted. The, um, the crack versus coke um, sentencing guidelines, for instance, that adversely affected the black community. So we have institutional racism, for sure. We have policies in America and around the world 
that are in place to subjugate and to keep people down. No doubt, no doubt. But rather than focusing on these things, how do we, how do we manifest change? And that's a question as much as something that I want to talk about because you don't make change by firing tear gas at peaceful protesters. You don't manifest change by creating division through social media, through the news cycles, through politics. What we need is cohesion and a coming together of dialogue. And that's one, of my, that's one of the issues I have with these protests is what are they asking for? They say black, black lives matter. For sure, for sure. But what does that mean? Are you looking to tear down all the institutions, many of which currently support the black community? Are you looking to tear those down and start from scratch? And if so, who's the architect of what comes next? And have you given any thought to what that looks like? And how do you, uh, how do you account for equality in the truest sense of the word? Because I know a lot of people out here are saying all lives matter, which is true. All lives do matter, but we're paying particular attention to the plight of, the, you know, of, of black people at the moment. So black lives definitely matter, especially in the context of what we're talking about now that stem from, you know, the three or four other police killings that have been very notable in America of black people. Uh, Breonna, I think it was Breonna Taylor um, and the other ones, I had them written down, but I've lost my notes. So apologies for that. Um, but you know who I'm talking about. So... These institutions that need to be torn down, what do they get replaced with? And who, who builds them? And who designs them? Because when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we understand to an extent some of the things that need to be changed, right? Perhaps we're talking about reparations and funding to black owned businesses and black institutions and you know so on and so forth black college funds and so on and so forth what about asians <clears throat> what about mexicans what about disabled people what about you know if we want to go down the lgbtq route what about those people because the architect of the system will always design the system in favor of themselves so it has to be a collective, I would imagine, if you're going to tear these institutions down. And which institutions are you tearing down? This is the problem I have with the protests, is there's a lot of noise, but there's no nuance. There's a lot of chaos, but there's not a lot of clarity on what the point is. And I don't like Extinction Rebellion and those crazy fucks that jumped on the tube. But at least when they were protesting in London, they said, we are protesting to have this legislation changed by the government. And if they agree to do that, we will stop protesting. 
what is the call to action? Because I've seen celebrities like Michael B. Jordan out there in America, and he's calling for Hollywood to uh, empower more black content creators. Okay, but that's not a law. That's not a law. And Hollywood is designed off of supply and demand, right? And we know, yes, there was rich black Asians, and that was a great, huge box office hit for the Asian community. And Black Panther was an amazing superhero movie for the black community that grossed a whole bunch of money. So it can be done without having white lead actors in all of the films that you produce. But that's not a legislative change. What is the legislative change that is meant to come out of the Black Lives Matter protests? I have this as a serious question because I don't know. What I see is a lot of people grabbing the attention of the camera to make a chant, to, you know, to, to chant a slogan or to make statements like, yes, we need more representation in Hollywood. Okay, I get that. I get that. But what's the change? What is the change? You have to be specific if you're protesting on a cause that you expect to lead to change. It's a reverse engineering thing, right? You don't start at the protest and work your way up to a solution. You have to start at the solution and say, this is what we want to achieve. What are the steps working backwards to present day that we have to do that will manifest these changes out? And I'm not hearing any of that. And unless it's not being shown by the media or uh, I'm just not watching the right stuff, I don't know. But I'd love to be educated on what they're actually asking for. Because without that, you just have riots. You just have protesters. And if everybody has a different message, then that will get lost in the overall and you will never come out the end of this thing with a solution. And then what will happen? It will all simmer down. People will go back to the respective houses or respective businesses until something like this happens again. And then it will all blow up. I'm not saying anything about institutional racism not being true. It absolutely is. My question is, what next? Because... What doesn't get anything done, in my opinion, is, is posting a black square on your Instagram feed. That is about the smallest amount of effort that you can make in order to appear like you're part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And for me, that is a complete virtue signal. It's a waste of time. It's for people who want to act like they're involved but actually have no have no skin in the game, no intention of being in the game. They just want to look like they're part of the team. And that's a real problem because unless you're, unless you're showing real change, why are you doing it? Virtue signaling to me is one of the most disgusting human behaviors that is prevalent today. And it's because of the rise of social media. It's because everybody can just type, you know, 280 characters, press send with an image, change their profile picture on Facebook to have a superimposed flag on the back. But they're not donating to the cause. They're not actually saying anything. They're not actually looking for change. They're not actually trying to manifest a change in their own behavior or the way they communicate with other people or, you know, any of these things. They just like 
the least amount of effort that shows the most amount of solidarity. And that to me is disgusting. It's just like people who are on the other side of this conversation. <clears throat> For instance, I saw Candace Owens. She did a 20-minute video on why she doesn't support George Floyd and why we need to you know, hold up standards of, uh, of better Black Americans to look at and to idolize and to you know, hold up as our heroes. And some of what she said I didn't totally disagree with. But again, she fails to mention that the plight of the Black community is real. The history of the struggle in the Black community is real. It's not about everybody being able to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. When you have the situation where a Black person can't get a mortgage, you know, irrespective of how much they earn, what their education is, there were times in America in the very recent past where a Black person or a Black family couldn't buy a house in the suburbs. That's marginalization. That's got nothing to do with your attitude, right? That's institutional racism that keeps a certain people down. When there are liquor stores and gun stores in the ghetto, what are you trying to do? With these urban planners and these infrastructure development companies and things like that, why are they built that way? Property ownership is, I think, the single greatest uh, like wealth measurement in America. And Black people for decades and decades and decades were cut out of that. Were cut out of that progress ladder. They couldn't get on that ladder. So it's not just about we have to do better and we have to look up and you can't just throw examples like Will Smith or LeBron James out there as like, well, they did it. So everybody can do it. That's horseshit. You're selectively targeting six. That, that's like, that's like saying the secret works because you see Richard Branson and he's a billionaire and he followed it. Well, the secret actually sold like 10 million copies. So why don't you go and do a complete survey of all the people that bought The Secret and see how many fucking millionaires came out of the back of it? Because if you just think about something and don't actually take action towards manifesting the end result, guess where you end up? Looking at the back cover of that book, wondering what the fuck happened. You have to take action. You have to take action. And that's what's going on. So if you are unable to take action off your own back, like for instance, I... I'm a black person, I have educated myself, I have kept you know, my, my nose clean and my behavior straight and I've, I've tried to do the best I can and raise a family and now all I wanna do is move to a safer community and I can't. And now I have to live in a place where the you know, city council or whoever's responsible for that tells me I can buy a house. And in the great bulk of history, that's been in a really, really shitty area. It's called the other side of the tracks for a reason. Now, what happens if something tragic befalls that family? Like the dad gets shot in a random drive-by shooting because he's in a socially economic, socioeconomically disastrous situation in a very tore-up crime-ridden neighborhood. Because people are starving, people are trying to do what they can for their family, but they're laid off, and that leads to substance abuse. And now maybe that dad goes down the wrong road, and now he can't provide for his family, so his kids go down the wrong road, and the cycle continues. 
and here we go, and here we go, and here we go. These are how, these are, that's a very small example of how institutional racism can manifest out into a cyclical, a cyclical disaster that perpetuates over generations. So for people like Candace Owen, just to throw out things like, well, you know, LeBron James made it out. Or you take some of these, you know, selective success stories. It doesn't give a true picture of what's actually going on. And it's offensive. It's offensive to me to hear her spout such bullshit when she takes these selective facts and doesn't actually want to give you the nuance in the context of the entire situation. So it's the virtue signaling that's really pissing me off. And it's these people that are, are giving you parts of the story. And I don't think that I'm giving you the whole story, but I'm trying to do my best to understand what's going on, to relay that information to you and to say, as long as our efforts are channeled in the right direction, a change can come that is long lasting off the back of these actions. But if not, then all you're perceived as is a bunch of hoodlums that are going around wrecking shit for the sake of your own self-indulgence. Because you can't just say black lives matter. Like you can, but what does that mean? Does that mean defund the police? What does that look like out of interest if we don't have a police department anymore? What does that look like out of interest? And what do you think that's gonna do to the most downtrodden neighborhoods and communities in America or in the UK. Am I a fan of the police? Not particularly. When I was younger, I had a ton of bad run-ins with the police. Not so much in my older age, but I, you know, I'm one of those people that even if a cop drives by my house, I feel guilty for some reason. So I'm not, I'm not immune to some of these feelings because I grew up poor. I grew up as one of those poor white folks who got looked at terribly and suspiciously when I walked into a grocery store, into a clothing shop, or into a footwear shop, anywhere they would look at me because of how I looked and because of what my appearance said about my upbringing. But I'll tell you one thing that my upbringing did do for me, and that is unplugged me from what a lot of households have, whether they're unconsciously doing it or consciously doing it, I didn't have a lot of racism in the house. In fact, I don't recall it at all in my house. And I was raised with my mom and my sister. And my mom never once told me that someone is different because of the skin color they have or because of where they grew up. And maybe that's because she escaped a horribly abusive situation and moved us to Canada to escape that so she could do better for herself and had to work, you know, as a below minimum wage waitress to put herself through school so she could get herself a degree to then further her situation and improve the lives of her kids. But I never gave one thought to whether or not I was able to bring a black person over or you know, an Indian person over for a visit or, or any of that or date someone of a different color. That was never in my 
in my spectrum of, of, of something that I could or should decide on differently than just how I felt. So a lot of credit is due to the parents who unplug their kids from what is that environment of systemic racism. I think casual racism is one of the most dangerous things for young people to have around them because it teaches them a normality, a sense of normality around certain terms or certain phrases or certain kind of thought processes. And, and it's just really, really unhelpful. And you can tell. You can tell those folks who grew up in a household where, you know, if they wanted to bring around a black friend, they brought around a black friend and they ate over for dinner and that was cool, you know? I had black friends growing up that called my mom, mom, you know? And I think if anything, I think as, if anything, as a starting point, that's where the generational change will happen. It needs to happen at home. And I could probably spend two hours talking about just how that works and how that's so complicated. <clears throat> you know, when you have babies having babies and, you know, they're in these kind of ignorant situations to begin with, with a very, you know, a very, a, a very large lack of education. Um, this is what this is. This is, an this, is a, this is an opportunity to educate yourself. It's an opportunity to read. It's an opportunity to listen. It's an opportunity to think. And from what I'm seeing with these protesters, there's not a lot of thinking going on. As generally happens when you have a herd mentality or, or you know, that crowd mentality where it's like, follow the, follow the masses, they'll show us the way, you know. And that's another reason why I didn't want to get involved in the protests in the first place. Because I'd rather sit here and just work out my thoughts and, and ask the questions that I want to ask. Because I think that's more productive. Protesting is productive. Of course it's productive if it's done in the right way. And what I'm seeing now is a degradation of these protests turning into just violence. And violence is only going to cause sensible people to view them as that alone and ignore the cause. And the cause is so important. But when I see... When I see the president of the United States turning all the whites off in the White House and going down into the bunker because there's protesters in front of the White House, say what you like about Trump, say what you don't like about Trump. I think one thing to agree on is he is a coward. Donald Trump is a coward. Because the very, what was it, very next morning he comes out and does a speech in the Rose Garden and then an impromptu walk to a church where he holds up the Bible, looking like the devil incarnate, by the way. I mean, that was one of the most sinister photos I've ever seen. He was like, you know, he, he had the Bible upside down. He looked like he was holding, he looked like he'd never held a book in his entire life. And he made some spectacle about walking from the Rose Garden across the, tree, uh, across the street to a church, like he's some, <laughs> like he's some hero, like he's some band, like some big bad man. And I think that was an indication of what an actual coward he is. Because in order for him to get that photo opportunity, 
they had to fire uh, tear gas at peaceful protesters to disperse them from the area. Why? Because they would have protested him being there. Just like the vicar of that church came out and condemned that photo opportunity moments after he'd done it. But when you've got leadership like this in place, and the leadership in the UK is not exempt from this criticism by any stretch of the imagination, when you have a guy like the President of the United States acting the way he's been acting, throwing out the rhetoric, like when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which is obviously a racist quote from some guy back in the 60s. I can't remember the name of it. Rudy Giuliani was talking about it the other day. He is a provocateur himself. He is an instigator himself because all he wants is division. He wants to break up communities so that his base will be the one that rally behind him while everything else is fragmented in the community and in the society. And he can ride this hopefully to another term in the White House. And I think this, the tide is shifting. But equally gross, I don't like seeing Joe Biden go out there on a street corner and try to do some staged photo opportunity with four black guys. If anything, the one to look at is Mitt Romney, who just strapped a face mask on and went for a walk. He went with the protesters, peacefully marched towards the White House and took his action. Then he can come back to the platform that he has and explain what's going on on the streets, what needs to be done going forward or what the mood and temperature of the folks on the streets is and maybe react accordingly to that but these virtue signals are disgusting and they're completely unhelpful and Mitt Romney is the only single Republican senator that has been affiliated or aligned with these Black Lives Matter protests in any way shape or form and that's Trump's MO. He wants to keep the politics divided. There's no, there's no time for cohesion in Trump's world. Because when you have a collective that's that big, everybody knows what a piece of shit he is and how full of shit he is with almost every single word that comes out of his mouth. So... From a macro scale, this institutional racism has been going on for a long, long time. And I would like some clarity from the folks who are much better placed to explain what they want than I am or to even guess. And from a micro scale, it comes down to the individuality of households and local communities to change what is racist behavior to undo stereotypes to be just you know what it's about it's about perpetuating positive interactions versus negative or suspicious interactions and i think there's a job to be done on the micro scale and there's a job to be done on the macro scale. But one thing I would recommend before I go is 
Stop listening to the news. CNN, Fox, BBC, Sky News, RT, CBS, MSNBC, the Wall Street or the um, yeah the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Forget it. They have no interest in educating you or providing you with accurate, true facts. It's across the board. It is across the board. Social media is that times 10 because the people that own these companies are actively selling your data to people who want to manipulate you with untrue messages that create division. Why? Because the more you see something you don't like, the more you're going to watch it. We are more interested in negative stuff than we are in positive. And if that was not a true statement, then the statement that if it bleeds, it leads would not be a truism. But unfortunately, it, it is, which is why the majority of the media coverage shows people tearing down statues, defacing statues. By the way, the scumbags that have been defacing the statues of Gandhi and Winston Churchill just need to spend five minutes listening to a history documentary or reading a couple of pages of a history book to understand, again, that the negatives of these folks is not the sum total of who they were and actually what they did as a whole is probably something we should consider more important than maybe the, the fallible parts of their personality. That does not go for Colston, who was a slave trader, it doesn't go all the way for Cecil Rhodes, who I talked about at the beginning of the show. But what I'm saying is you can't just paint people with these incendiary terms. If you call everybody a Nazi, you're never going to see the Nazis coming down the road, right? If you call everybody a white supremacist, you're not going to see the real white supremacist coming down the road. You can't call people fascists just because you like the term, because it's the most incendiary term that you can call somebody. Because when the fascists come knocking at the door, you won't know. And then you get clubbed over the head, your civil liberties and your rights get taken away. And then you find out what it's truly like to be subverted and subjugated like these black folks have been for generations and generations and other ethnic minority communities as well. So. I'm not saying to stop the protest. I'm saying to direct them. From a macro level, you need to make demands. This needs to happen or we will not come off the street. And on a micro level, we need to take individual personal responsibility for how we interact with each other, how we view others, how we opinionate our thoughts and, 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 and you know, verbalize our thoughts on certain situations. And the last thing I wanted to do was come onto this show and say, guys, I got, the, I got the answer. I got the answer. Because I don't. I don't. But I know in my heart that racism is not a thing that permeates my personality and does not guide any of my actions. To say that I don't see color would be ignorant. But interacting with people of color is not unusual or uncomfortable. And I wanna learn from as many people out there 
that as as that have things to say that are useful and valid. I don't want virtue signaling. I don't want you know uh, contrarian arguments just for the sake of being contrarian. I don't want uneducated points of view that are just you know taking sound bites off of the local media cycle because it's not going to do anything. There needs to be a point of self reflection here and, and and accountability on one's own part to say let me just be honest with myself for a minute. Is there something else I could do differently? But talking to the protesters directly, there needs to be some course of action. There needs to be an end goal that you're working towards or what else is the point? You can't just cause disruption because if you cause disruption and vandalism and chaos, you will be seen as a chaotic a chaotic bunch of miscreant vandals that are just out there for the sake of breaking shit and fucking stuff up. So I would love to see a Black Lives Matters manifesto of change. Because posting square photos on your Instagram does nothing. Making some tweet about how this is a problem and that's a problem and you know, it does nothing. So how are you going to get involved? The way I get involved is by speaking my thoughts, is by trying to, you know, trying to affect some change of opinion or, or change of thought. And, and as I said at the beginning of the show, just create some nuance that allows us to look at all of the sides for what they are. But this is a big, this is a big history lesson. It's a big history lesson, and it's a, it's, a time to, it's a time to think before acting because we are an emotional creature, and what we're seeing now is our emotions are potentially getting the best of us, but not in a good way. I can only understand the minutia of how frustrating and how personally damaging this is for the black community and how long they've have to suffer under this sort of societal treatment. But the world is listening now, hopefully. So make your demands. And let's see if the world joins together with you to make those demands a reality. So let's see how that goes. Let's see how that comes off. Um, I hope you guys found some of what I said informative, some of what I said enlightening, um, maybe educational. I don't know. Um, I had to speak on it because I've been thinking about it for, as I said, the last couple of weeks now. And if I didn't, I would have probably kicked myself, but who knows what the reaction is going to be. Maybe I'll be kicking myself after this, but I would love your feedback. And um, that's it. So if you are protesting, stay safe. Don't just vandalize things for the sake of it. Get home safe and uh, keep up the good fight. Until next time, guys, all the best.